The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Good to see you. Uh, welcome. Uh, welcome to My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. A couple things real quick before we get into God's Word together, just by way of reminder. The first is that Easter weekend is two weeks away, uh, which we're really, really, I'm really, really excited about. prayer room. Uh, This is a contemplative guided prayer experience through the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life here on earth before facing the cross. And so we've got these beautiful graphic arts that we're going to kind of walk through. Uh, So come when you're available, 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. It's going to be open all day. Uh, We're also still looking for a few folks to volunteer if you want to help man the room for an hour or two and have some time on Friday as well. And then we're going to be back on Sunday for one big Easter celebration together as a family. Uh, 9 a.m. we're going to have free lattes and donuts. 9.30 we're going to have an Easter egg hunt for the kids. And then 10 a.m. we're going to be up, Lord willing, weather permitting, on the roof, worshiping together, um, looking out over our beautiful, wonderful Queen City. So really, really excited to do that. The weather is turning towards warmth, and so I have hope that it's not going to be 32 degrees. Um, but we'll see. Uh, last thing, uh, just by way of like housekeeping, if you're um, just, just so we're all kind of on the same page, is that the week after Easter, we're going to be making a quick shift in terms of how we enter and exit the building. So right now we've been using what's technically the back entrance to the Dowd YMCA. We're actually going to flip that and start using what is technically the front entrance over on uh, Moorhead Street, um, mainly because that will keep everybody from walking right past our kids' space as the first thing they see and the last thing they see on the way out. So it's just going to provide more safety and security uh, for our City Kids Ministry, as well as open up the opportunity to use one of the rooms over there for a nursing mom's room, because we've got a lot of babies that have been born and are being born in the next few months, uh, which is a beautiful, wonderful thing that we're celebrating. And so we want to create that space for moms in our church. So the week after Easter, uh, we'll have signs, so don't worry about like getting lost or anything like that. Just go around to the other door as what we'll use for entrance and exit. All right, that's a lot of housekeeping. Let's get to what we're here for, uh, which is the Word of God together. Let me pray. And then we're going to be back in Matthew chapter 6. Two more lines left in the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, come before you as those who long to know you. Who want to be with you, to commune with you, to sit and linger in your presence. Lord, I pray over the next few moments that what we do by the power of the Holy Spirit and because of your grace, Lord, would just push us outside of this immediacy of life and the busyness of life and the material nature of life and that we would, for just a moment, see you, know you, commune. Lord, I pray that you would ground us in your word and your truth, which promises to never return void, that you would rest our souls in your reality. 
invite us back to life with you. We love you. We need you. Make your word strong in our hearts. For all these things in Christ's name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, in the summer of 2013, I had the opportunity to work what was in some ways a dream internship opportunity. So I got to spend the summer living in Orange County, California, two blocks from the beach, working for a nonprofit organization that I absolutely loved and cared deeply about their mission. And in some ways, I had the best job ever. It was my job for the entire summer as a 21-year-old junior in college to travel around the country to art shows and music festivals promoting the work of this organization. So I got to do all of the fun things for a summer. It was awesome. And for the most part, it was a really, really great opportunity, except for one week in particular. There was one day, one week in the middle of July, where I returned home from one of the longer trips away to walk back into the office for the first time in two weeks, immediately into a meeting with my supervisor, where he had an entire list of bullet point complaints that the two coworkers I had been traveling with had called him from the road to say about me. What I learned in that moment, which maybe you've experienced in your own life, is that there's something uniquely exposing and vulnerable about having someone in authority over you tell you all of the ways you are not, in fact, awesome, like you think you are. Maybe you can relate to that experience. Maybe you've had that bad job review where you've sat down across from your supervisor thinking, I'm awesome. This is going to be a great quarterly review, only to have him or her tell you all of the ways you've not, in fact, been awesome. Or as you can think back to college or high school, that meeting with a teacher or a professor where they said to you, hey, these are all of the ways you're not measuring up to the standard of grades in my class. Or maybe if you can remember back to high school or middle school when you did something you knew broke the rules of your parents only to have them say the worst four words you can hear, I'm disappointed in you. I remember that meeting like it was yesterday because it just seemed like this moment where I'm ripped open and I can just see, okay, these are all of the ways that I am not what I think I am. There's something uniquely exposing about that. There's something uniquely vulnerable about that feeling of incompetency, about that deep awareness of our shortcomings and mistakes and the presence of someone who we know is our authority. And that's why I would argue today's line in the Lord's Prayer can be so difficult. <laughs> Matthew 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see, this is a jarring line of exposure. As one pastor says, it's like the unexpected wave that comes up in the middle of the lake that throws the whole boat upside down. Because here we are, right? We're cruising along in the Lord's Prayer. And we just saw last week this beautiful invitation to ask the Lord for daily bread, to bring all of our requests and needs and desires to God. And next week, we're going to learn to pray, deliver us from evil. And here, in the middle of a prayer for provision and a prayer for protection, we get, forgive us our debts. A line, which as we'll see this morning, invites us to open up even the most broken, jacked up, and evil parts of our soul to the Lord, showing him what he in fact already knows, that there are specific ways we are not in fact awesome. You see, this line is an invitation to a moment in prayer to declare to the Lord, I'm not as put together or good or holy as I often think myself to be or as I want to present myself to the world. But in fact, Lord, I'm going to agree with you that at a deep level, I am broken and full of sin and rebellious at my core and desperately in need of the saving work of Jesus. 
and of the continual forgiveness of my heavenly Father. That's the nature of this line of the prayer. Are we ready for that? No. Awesome. <laughs> we're going to get into it anyway. Matthew chapter 6. Here's what I want to do. I want to break down the phrase together. Make sure we're on the same page about what Jesus is inviting us into in this line. And then we'll circle back and apply it at the end. Matthew 6. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Let's start by talking about that word in the middle of the line. The word debts. Or in the Greek, ophelema. Which can be translated as some English translations do, sin. So the NLT, the New Living Translation has this passage as, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. So let's take a moment to talk about sin. There are many ways the Bible talks about sin. The Bible talks about sin like a crime. Sin often involves breaking God's laws, the, the governing rules of life that he has established and set for us to live in. Sin is also described in the this, this scriptures as a shortcoming, a, a missing of the mark. That God has a standard, and sin is when we break that standard, either through the things we do, contrary to his design, or the things we don't do that he calls us to do and live out. So, for instance, God has called us to love the poor. And so when we neglect the poor, when we turn a blind eye to the poor and have failed to live into his design, that is missing the mark for our lives that he has for us, and that is called sin. But sin is seen in scriptures, not just as things we do, but the Bible takes it much deeper than that. Sin is also described as a positional status. Being in sin in the scriptures means we are in a state of enmity. We are separated from God. The Bible is very clear that those who do not worship God are his enemies, separated and rebellious against him. Sin is also described as a pollution of the soul. Sin is this corrupting force inside of us which bends us in our very nature against the things of God. Sin is also seen as a decayer of the world, the operating force in the world outside of us which breaks things down towards death and decay. And so in case you're not picking up on it yet, sin in the Bible is a very, 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 very big problem. In fact, it is shown as the greatest problem of humanity, both internally within us and externally in the world around us, and the very thing Jesus came to deal with. This is what Paul says to his disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now here in the Lord's Prayer specifically, Jesus refers to sin as a debt. This is actually one of the most predominant pictures in this Bible for sin. Sin puts us under a debt. And here's what that means. When we sin, we do not sin against a rule or a law. We sin by breaking a rule or law, but in doing so, we sin against the person of God. When we sin, we have gone against God, when we do so, we put ourselves under a moral debt to him. Because here's what happens. God, the creator, has commanded us, his creation, to be holy and perfect, as he is holy and perfect. And so with even one transgression, even one sin, even what might feel like the smallest thing, right? Losing our temper, a little white lie, whatever it may be, even with the thing that feels the tiniest, we fall hopelessly short of God's standard of perfection. And because of that, as unpopular as it may be to say, the scriptures are clear. What we deserve rightfully and justly from the perfect God of the universe is death and punishment for eternity. Romans 6 is very clear on this. The wages of sin is death. The price 
for our sin is death. That is the debt we owe. That is what Jesus means when he says debt in Matthew chapter 6, that we owe a debt to God because of how holy he is, so massive it should require our very lives. Which is why the first two lines, the first two words in the line are so important. Forgive us. Forgive us. We don't need help. We don't need a guide towards being our best selves. We don't need aid. We don't need God to simply overlook or have a little bit of leniency for us. We need nothing short of God's miraculous debt payment, pardon, and forgiveness. We need someone else to step in and say, this debt is canceled. I've paid it. And that's exactly what is offered to us in Christ Jesus. Right? Christ comes. He lives a perfect life we cannot live, meaning he is never put under the debt of sin. And yet he goes to the cross, taking our sin upon himself to pay the debt we owe to God. Think about it this way. Our debt payment to God because of our sin requires nothing less than our lives, and yet Jesus gives up his life instead. He pays the debt to God so we can be forgiven. Our sins are done away with. As the literal translation of this text would read, God, send our sins far from us. The accountants in the room, this is like going to the books which record our debt, canceling out the debt, and then burning the books. That is what Christ does and offers to all who trust in For all who look to the cross of Christ and believe him in my place for my sin, we are forgiven of our debts. Look at how Paul says it in Colossians 3. And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In two weeks, we're going to have this Good Friday Stations of the Cross prayer room. And one of the things that we're going to be reflecting on and contemplating over the course of that day is the fact that Jesus took our record of death and nailed it to the cross. That is what is offered to us in what Christians call the gospel. That is the foundation of our faith. Jesus in our place for our sin to cancel our debt we owe to God. That's the good news, right? That's why we're gathered here together. In just a few minutes, we're going to go down to the pool, and we're going to awkwardly put some people under the water and bring them back up, and we're going to celebrate like we've never celebrated before because that is a physical representation of this reality. Right? That Jesus has found some people, rescued them to life, and canceled the debt they owe to God. That is why that's a big deal. That is why that is worth celebrating. Now, here comes the tricky part. This prayer is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7 is Jesus' longest sermon in the scriptures, his longest recorded discourse, and it's a sermon very clearly that he is giving to his disciples, to those who follow him. And so Jesus is not talking in Matthew 6, 12 about a salvation forgiveness. He is not talking about a salvation prayer. He's talking to those who already follow him as Messiah, as Savior and Lord. And so how, then, becomes the question, do we pray this prayer as Christians, right? If our sins have already been dealt with once and forever for all who trust in Christ, right, we have forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't keep dying. He died one time, once. When you put your faith in him, you are forgiven, right, from sins past, from sins present, and for sins future. We don't keep receiving salvation. That's not the invitation of Matthew 6, 12. It's not, hey, keep getting saved as you keep sinning. That's not what it means, 
Well, then what does it mean? Why this prayer for those who trust in Christ? If God has forgiven my sins through Jesus, why do I need to keep asking for forgiveness? Well, I find a few folks much smarter than me really helpful here. Justin Dillay, he's a pastor in Tennessee, says it this way. He says, the reason we pray, forgive us our debts, is not because we've lost our state of grace and need to be resaved. Justification is permanent, meaning the declaration of God over you, if you trust in Jesus, as righteous and holy, that is secure. That is permanent. Rather, he says, confessing our sin reminds us there's more to salvation than just being justified. There's more to saving faith than just being declared right. Salvation also involves being sanctified. That is, being made to look more like Jesus and treated as sons and daughters. In other words, Justin would say, okay, forgive us our debts as Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6. is not because we need to be resaved, but rather daily confessing of our sins to God is a means by which we look more like Jesus. Try to be on R.C. Sproul. He says it even more clearly. Yes, my sins have all been paid for once and for all on the cross. But Jesus taught us to pray for forgiveness as part of our ongoing communion with God. We need a fresh understanding, a fresh experience of his grace and his forgiveness every day. It's that chance to sit in what the Psalms say, that God's mercies are new every morning. Not because we need salvation new every morning, but because we need his fresh way of grace. One pastor talks about it like a judge and a father. In our prayer of saving faith, God the judge is satisfied. Yet in the prayer of daily confession, we learn once again to walk in communion with God, our Father. And so we don't pray and ask for forgiveness in a salvific sense, but rather in a relational sense. This is a prayer for the restoration of personal fellowship with God when that fellowship has been hindered by sin. So let me try to give you an example of this just to make sure we're clear. You're like, I get it. Let me just make sure. Let's say Lindsay and I are having a discussion and I lose my temper and just kind of start yelling at her, go off on her, all of that. And that rightfully, as my wife makes her upset, right? I have sinned against her. I have gotten unrighteously anger lashed out and sinned against her. Now imagine I were to say to her, hey, well, we're married. Like, that doesn't really matter, right? Like, you've already committed. We're already committed for life. Like, I don't need to apologize. You don't need to forgive me. We're married. We've already covenanted ourselves to one another, right? You would think that that's really dumb, right? You would think that is not being a good husband. You would think he's the pastor. That's weird. But here's the reality. That wouldn't make sense because though it is true that our commitment was declared in the past and our covenant was sealed in the past, me not apologizing for the way my sin is against her is me getting in the way of future communion and intimacy as a married couple. In fact, the longer we're married, the more I should understand how my sin affects her and hurts her and the more ready I should be to seek apology and reconciliation for that greater communion. And that's what's happening here in Matthew 6. This prayer for forgiveness was supremely and totally answered when you put your faith in Jesus. But the continual call of this prayer is to go back each time we rebel against our Father and receive from Him renewed daily grace and mercy for our ongoing sin and shortcomings. Then we got to deal with the second part of the line. As we also have forgiven our debtors. It's interesting, right? Good Bible readers, we might note, this is the only part of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus tells us to include a caveat, right? He doesn't say, hey, pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread as we provide the daily bread of others, right? He doesn't say that. 
This is the only place where Jesus gives a caveat in the prayer, that the forgiveness we ask God for is directly connected to the forgiveness we are willing to give to others. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. So we have to ask the question, does this mean forgiving others is a requirement to being forgiven by God? Does this mean forgiving others is a requirement to being forgiven by God? Yes and no. Let's explain. Forgiveness is a gift, right? Freely available to us through Jesus. The scriptures are abundantly clear and they do not contradict themselves. But the scriptures are also clear that those who receive and live by God's forgiveness must imitate it. So Jesus here is not giving a condition to forgiveness, but rather an evidence of and aspiration towards from forgiveness. That those who have been forgiven much by God and who learn to live in the daily reality of that forgiveness are those who forgive others. Or to put it really simply, forgiven people forgive. Those who have received the forgiveness from Jesus is the, are those who then move in forgiveness towards others. And so if you don't forgive others, it's according to Jesus, not to me. I would agree with him though. Overwhelming evidence, if you do not forgive others, that you have not fully embraced Jesus's forgiveness for you. If you have resentment in your heart, lack of forgiveness in your heart towards that person who sinned against you, even though that sin was as wicked as you want to make it, unresolved forgiveness may be a sign, according to Jesus in Matthew 6, that you have not actually fully grasped his forgiveness for you. And to help us in that, I think the parable Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 18 is super helpful. So this week, I think our Lent guide is going to take us there. But if not, Matthew 18, read it this week, but I'll give you the 30,000 feet view. What happens in Matthew 18 is Jesus uh, is approached by Peter and Peter asks, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And he gives a suggestion, maybe perhaps seven times. And what's happening here in Jewish tradition is that they would teach you, you have to forgive three times. So Peter is actually trying to appear more holy than his tradition, which is very on par for Peter, right? He's like seven. How about that? I'm super holy, right? Jesus. So Jesus responds, no, Peter, let me tell you a story. And he goes into this story about a man who was forgiven by the king of his land, a debt of basically billions and billions of dollars. And then he turns around and he finds a man after being forgiven of billions who owes him basically like a hundred bucks and he doesn't forgive him. And he actually has him thrown in jail. So Jesus tells this story and then he ends it with Matthew 18, 32. He says, then his master summoned the man and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So Peter asks, like we often do, all right, how bad is too bad? Right? Like how much forgiveness do I have to give to that person? Like how many times do I have to forgive them? Tell me how far I have to go in forgiveness so I can just know what to do and not forgive as I want to forgive, whatever it may be. We ask these same questions. And Jesus says, essentially through this story, people in my kingdom forgive. If you are living in the kingdom of God, you become a forgiving person. And if you're not a forgiving person, then perhaps, according to Jesus, he may not be your king. So let me summarize all this for us. Forgive us our debts is an invitation to a daily practice of confessing our sins to and asking forgiveness from our heavenly father. So what this line means, forgive us our debts is an invitation to a daily practice of confessing our sins to and asking forgiveness from our heavenly father. That's what we're going after today. Forgive us our debts, a daily practice, confessing our sins to and asking forgiveness from our heavenly father. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road for us today. Everybody good? Feeling all right? Great. 
In order for us to confess our sins, we have to name our sins. And in order for us to name our sins, we have to know our sins. And in order for us to know our sins, we have to be willing to actually stop and look at the dark parts of our hearts. In other words, there's a practice that comes before and is, as I would argue, the first step towards confessing our sins to God, and that is the practice of examine. So we're going to be doing this week in our Lent guides and as a church. We're going to be doing the practice of examine. Here's what it means to examine. Examine is a daily exercise of opening our hearts and lives to God. Examine is a daily exercise of opening our hearts and lives to God. It's an ancient practice. It's rooted in the scriptures. There's so much language for it in the book of Psalms. It's got examples littered throughout church history. What we do and examine is we learn to sit still with God and to let him expose the dark parts of our hearts to us such that we confess it to him and receive in return his tender love, forgiveness, and grace. It's learning to come before the Lord in humility and courage and brokenness, fully aware of our Heavenly Father's profound love and kindness to us in Christ Jesus, to open our hearts and lives and ask him very simply and very courageously, show me my sin that I might confess it back to you. That is the prayer of examine. It's saying with the psalmist in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me and know my heart. Know the deep desires of my soul. Know what draws me away from you. Know those things that I want to even deny myself that makes me want to run away and contrary to your very design. But also know my thoughts, how much of life and the Christian life is lived in our minds. Know those wicked things that I want to hide from others. Know those things that come into my mind in the quiet of my room. And see if there be any grievous way in me. Don't just look at my heart. Don't just look at my desires. Don't just know my thoughts, Lord, but also see my life. See if I'm living in a day-to-day reality that's in alignment with your kingdom. Search me, test me, examine me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, Father. That's the prayer of examine. Search me. Show me the sins that I am scared to even see myself, and yet be with me in the midst of this as a good and gracious Father. Because it's once again, like all of the Lord's Prayer, an invitation back to the primary goal of prayer, which is what? Communion, right? We've been saying this every single week, right? For the last five weeks, we're going to, spoiler alert, we're going to say it again next week. The central goal of prayer is not to get stuff from God, not to have some spiritual high, not to throw our requests to him. That's all part of it. But the central goal of prayer is communion with our father. And here too, in forgive us our debts, we're once again invited back to a place of communion. Lord, examine my heart. Show me my thoughts. Show me where I'm broken and messed up and in need. Because what we know about communion is that we think wrongly that communion is found if we hide the bad and show God the good. That's where he'll love us. If I can present this beautiful picture to God, then I will receive his kindness and affection. And the scriptures in the upside down kingdom of God always turn things on its head and say, no, it's actually in the place of your greatest brokenness and sin and need that you experience the deepest communion of your father. So we come to him broken. This is hard for us for a whole host of reasons. Sitting still, asking the Lord to show us our sin is hard for so many reasons. For some, it's because we're busy. And this takes quiet, patience, 
to sit before the Lord and not go, all right, Lord, show me my sin. All right, let's move on. <laughs> takes time. We're much too busy for time. For others of us, this is hard because we live in chaos and noise. And some of that's unavoidable. <laughs> for many of us, we don't know how to quiet our hearts, right? We rush into prayer, ready to talk, ready to say things, even good things like adoration and worship. We come into prayer, ready to say a bunch of stuff to God. And this requires us to be still, to listen. Yet for others of us, this is difficult because we're trained in our society to never think we're wrong. Right, let's just face it. We live in a victimhood culture where we're trained, okay? It's never my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Who do I point the finger at? I know, like, I may have done something bad, but it's always a response. Somebody else caused me to do this. And still, more than anything, as we started this morning, this line and practice of examine is so difficult because we are resistant at a core level to the very things it requires, namely being vulnerable and exposed. And that's back to the very beginning, right? Genesis chapter 3. Think about Adam and Eve, right? The very first sin against God, the very first act of rebellion in the history of the world, and immediately what do they do? They run and hide and point fingers and blame shift. And God shows up in the garden, ready to interact with them, ready to express, hey, I've got a plan for this, Genesis 3.15, one day the, the child will come and crush the head of the serpent, I've got a plan, and yet where are they? Hiding. Nothing has changed. It's still the experience of sin and shame today, right? If I open myself up to God, ask him to search me and know me and show me my sin, then agree with him that there are very real parts of me that are still wicked and evil and being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's uncomfortable and painful and exposing. And I'd much rather blame others. I'd much rather continue to hide. I'd much rather stick my head in the proverbial sand and shout, I'm doing fine, Lord. I'm doing totally okay until I convince myself that maybe it's true. I'm totally okay reworking the scriptures to just convince myself, no, maybe God's actually wrong here, and I'm not. We run to all these other directions to pacify our very real conviction, and yet we learn in this practice to remember the place of communion is not running from, it's running towards. I love Frederick Buechner for this. He says it this way. He says, to confess your sins to God is not to tell him anything he doesn't already know. Right, right after this, in Matthew 6, Jesus will say, all right, like, I know, your father knows what you need, Right? The same is also true for our brokenness. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the bridge. That's why I wanted to start this morning with a reminder of the gospel, right? That's why I wanted to start with the reality of what Christ has done for us in our place to pay the penalty and debt for our sins. Because that, trust in Christ, receiving God's forgiveness and salvation is the grounding part of this practice. It's the foundation. Because we enter into, Lord, search me and know me, under the foundation of being beloved children of God. Safe and secure and steady in the arms of our Father who says, let me show you what I already know to be true. Let me invite you to confess it back to me. Henry Nouwen, who's great about this stuff, he says this. He says, only in the context of grace can we face our sin. Only in the place of healing do we dare to show our wounds. Only with a single-minded attention to Christ can we give up our clinging fears and face our own true nature. It is a place where Christ remodels us in his own image and frees us from the victimizing compulsions of the world. I mean, y'all should read some now and that is good, right? 
only in the context of grace, only with the foundation that for those who trust in Jesus, we are dearly loved more than we can ever imagine. Only with that foundation can we ever face our sin. So what does this look like? Let me just real quickly, and then we're going to practice it. Let me just real quickly just give you some steps. What does it look like to practice examine? Let me just real fast give you some steps, and then I'm going to send us into doing this practice for just a few moments. What does this look like? Number one, what it, what it looks like to step into the practice of examine. Number one is silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. Doesn't mean you have to physically get away. It could involve that. It just means being still, being silent, setting up in your soul this place of you communing with the Lord. Henry now and again, uh, he has this wonderful book on silence and solitude. He says, uh, quote, solitude is the furnace of transformation. He says, most of us never grow and mature in Christ because we're never willing to be alone. Love that. He's good. You should read now and he's good. Number two, invite God. Invite God. This is once again a practice of, as a part of our communion. Lord, I'm here. I want to be still before you, right? And with the psalmist, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. This is the place where we ask the Lord to, show, to be with us, to remind us of his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his love, which is sure and true and sealed in Christ Jesus, and then to reveal what he needs to reveal to us, namely our sin and brokenness. Number three, we learn to identify and name our sins. We learn to identify and name our sins. Show me the grievous ways, Lord. One of the names thrown around for Jesus is the great physician. But think about just for a second, what would happen if you show up to the doctor and you resist his very specific treatment for the sake of your own generalities, right? So imagine you go to the doctor, you know something's wrong with your foot, you get some x-rays and the doctor shows up in the room and is like, hey, your foot is broken. And you're like, no, I've got some leg pain. You're like, no, your foot is broken. You need a cast for your foot. No, just like generically, can I have some ibuprofen? It's just kind of like painful over here, right? That would be getting in the way of the doctor doing the very thing he is trying to do, namely prescribe what is wrong with you and then give you a path towards healing. And here's what this happens in our prayer life, right? We show up and we say to God, okay, God, I, uh, I'm just kind of angry, I guess. And the Lord in examine is saying, no, you yelled at your wife. No, you lost it with your kids. No, you're frustrated 24-7 with your coworkers. No, you have a bitter spirit inside of you. He's trying to get us to name the specifics so he can do specific healing. So the prayer of examine is to confess, Lord, I want to name my symptoms completely and comprehensively because I want healing completely and comprehensively. We go from, okay, Lord, I guess I got some bad thoughts to, all right, Lord, these are all of the ways that I have rebelled in my thoughts against you. Let me just give you some categories for this. It's helpful. They're not on the screen, but you can write them down. Some sins to look for or to ask the Lord to, to show you. The first is blatant sins. Blatant sins. These are sins on the surface. Actions that you have taken, thoughts that you've had. Blatant sins. You want to ask the Lord to reveal ongoing idols. Ongoing, contrary to his design, desires in your heart. Sin reveals who or what we really trust. And so we want to ask God, all right, Lord, show me. Am I looking for security? Am I looking for power? Am I looking for control, for affection, for approval, for pleasure, whatever it may be? So we ask the Lord, Lord, show me what I did. Show me the underlying desires behind it. A few more categories to ask the Lord to search you on is, is the sins of commission. Commission. It's things you did contrary to his design. When the Lord has said no and you've done it. But also sins of omission. 
It's where we have good that we've left undone. God has called you into things, told you in his word to step into certain things and you've refused. We don't often think about that category. Often we're good at confessing the first, but not often the second. All right, number four, two more. Number four, then we confess and we repent to God. We confess and we repent to God. We actually confess it. All right, Lord, search my heart, show my grievous ways, and then we agree with God that they are in fact grievous. We agree with God that they are in fact against his design. And then we repent. Lord, give me the strength to actually turn in the other direction. That's what repentance is. Repentance is your head in one direction, you turn around and go the other direction by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? Real quick, just kind of a bullet point in four. A part of this step of repentance might be to go forgive others. This is where that second part of the line comes in, as we have forgiven those who are indebted to us, right? We learn, okay, maybe as I'm confessing my sin to God, one of the things he showed me is that I have not actually lived with forgiveness in my heart. I have not actually forgiven those who have sinned against me. And so part of repentance is going and giving and granting the same forgiveness God gives to you. Last one, number five, receive forgiveness and welcome. Too often we can stop at confession, right? All right, Lord, show me my sins. All right, here you go, I agree. And then we run into the day. Pause and we receive. We receive his kindness, reminders of his mercy, reminders that his grace is new every morning. We receive from God what he loves to give, his pardon and his forgiveness. All right, let's, let's lean into this together. If you've got a, a Bible or your bulletin, Psalm 32. Psalm 32. I just want to kind of get us into this practice together. What we've been doing uh, each week during this series um, is that we've been teaching on prayer and then reminding ourselves that prayer is not just something we think about or ponder, but something we actually learn to do by doing. So I'm just going to give us space to be with the Lord and to walk through this practice together. And so I want to get us into this practice with Psalm 32. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to read Psalm 32, and then I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm just going to give us a few moments to just be silent before the Lord and to pray that very simple prayer of Psalm 139. Search me, O Lord, know my heart. Lord, see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So I'm just going to give us space to ask the Lord, show me my sin, show me my brokenness, that I may confess it to you and receive forgiveness. So to get us into that, let me read Psalm 32. Then I'm going to pray. Austin, you can go ahead and come on up wherever you are. Psalm 32. One through five. Let this be an invitation for you into the practice of examine. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is this idea in the scriptures of flourishing, of deep joy and happiness and rightness. He says it again, verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whom spirit there is no deceit. There's no lying, there's no fooling anybody, just honesty about how broken we are. Verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You ever kept silent about a sin and just noticed it eats you from the inside out? For day and night, God's hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. God presses on his people because he disciplines those he loves. But then notice what happens. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity. 
iniquity of my sin. I didn't hide it anymore. You pressed me, my bones wasted away, but then I acknowledged it, I confessed it, and you forgave it. That's the promise of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll take some time to practice this together. Lord, we come before you. Lord, for those of us who trust in Christ Jesus, we come before you confident before your throne, knowing that he intercedes on our behalf, that he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And so we are free, Lord, to pray courageously, humbly, show us our sin that we might confess it and you might forgive it. We take some time to do that now. into communion and, and worship. Our prayer team's going to be around the room. Communion is one of many reasons we celebrate it every week as a church. It's because it's a weekly reminder of what Christ has done for us. But he has come, that he has lived the life we couldn't live, that he has died the death that we've deserved. And so for all who trust in Jesus, the table is open to come, to take the, the little wafer which represents his body, and to drink of the juice, which represents his blood, and to remember Christ in my place. So we get to do every week when we take communion. We get to remember Christ in my place, sealing my pardon, washing me clean, forgiving me of my transgressions. It's another act, just like daily examine and confession is, to remember anew the grace of God. So for all who trust in Jesus, the communion tables are open. If you're not a follower of Jesus, We'd ask you not to take, but rather to trust in Jesus, to confess your sin to him, that he might pardon you and forgive you and wash you clean. So a prayer team around the room, if you need prayer, you need somebody to remind you via prayer of Christ's good news for you, take it, take that opportunity, take that chance, and when you're ready, stand, let's sing, and let's worship the King Jesus. Together.